Gosh Pods, paediatric educational podcast series from Great Ormond Street Hospital. Gosh Pods are brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. So welcome to our educational podcast for paediatrics. My name is Sarah Warayach and we're joined today by Joe Briley. We're going to talk about ethics. Welcome Joe. Can you tell us what you specialise in? Thanks Sarah. Yes, I'm an intensive care consultant at Great Ormond Street and I also lead on bioethics. So what is ethics and why do we need to care about that in child health? It's a great question because we hear so often this is ethical, that's not ethical and actually without a definition people can get a little bit lost. So I I try and whenever I talk about ethics really start with defining things. So thanks for the question. Um, It's a branch of philosophy that deals with matters of right and wrong and I think without being too predictable there's almost a problem there isn't there because in paediatrics, with very complex decisions being made and different people involved with the child's care, whether something is right or wrong is really binary, and many things are a little bit more subtle than that. So it's interesting, it's a branch of philosophy dealing with matters of right and wrong in medicine for us in child health, that's paediatrics. But there are kind of different definitions as well. So some of the more traditional thoughts like the Socratic method tell you it's how we ought to live, mm-hmm. which for us in paediatrics and child health might be how paediatricians ought to behave with their patients, who are the children and families they, they serve and look after. But then there are other definitions as well. So Aristotle about finding our chief end or highest good. So with ethics, with philosophy, there are different ways of defining different things. I, I generally think for us it's about trying to make the best decision together with children, families, and different medical teams in really tough situations. And that's what I see as the, you know, what ethics ought to be today in medicine. Okay. So, so that sort of brings me on to the next question about what do the ethics committee or group do in a children's hospital? So the practical stuff. So we're, we're fabulously lucky in our hospital. So we've got a great ethics group. And we're lucky in that we have the support of the, the teams in the hospital and the hospital management the group actually consists at one level as a, as a subsection of our quality and safety committee, so it's very important we're part of the hospital. But we, we do different things. The group itself has a number of medical practitioners, but, but in no way are they the biggest group on the ethics committee. We have surgeons, anaesthetists, paediatricians, intensivists like myself. But also we have uh, previous parents at uh, Great Ormond Street who've been through either the ethics process or had complicated issues in the treatment of their children. We have chaplains from all the major faith groups, um, either on the committee or available to us to come and help if a a child and family have a particular faith, and that's important in the ethical issue we're facing. Um, We have lawyers. We're lucky in that we have a philosopher in Dave Archard, also a number of specialist ethicists, people trained in ethics. Um, And we have a number of nurses as well as doctors on the committee, so it's very balanced in terms of different clinical people in the hospital being part of the group, but also lay people. The work we do, we have four main areas. Um, Probably the most important is in um, thinking about tough ethical situations, helping, I guess, initially treating clinicians, often doctors who are the people who refer to ethics committees throughout the country. In Great Ormond Street, we've kind of moved a little bit further in that we kind of, we involve the child and the family Mm -hmm. in the discussions um, taking the, the NHS no decision without me very, very seriously, no decision about me without me, rather. And so we, we will discuss difficult situations but have the family at the centre of that. Um, and that might be whether trying a new treatment in a child who is otherwise dying is the right thing to do, particularly if that treatment has a very limited evidence base, mm-hmm. 
or it might be whether we should um, think about confidentiality for young people with things like HIV. We've had a number of cases where that's been a very difficult situation for not just the child and family, but also the staff involved trying to work out the right thing to do. So we have a huge variety in things we deal with. Um, a lot of them have to be done very quickly. So we're luckily having a number of people within the hospital who can attend what we call rapid responses and go and talk with the treating team and family within a, a day or so. Um, in fact, the quickest one we have is in a few hours. So that's kind of our major thing, the outward facing helping with clinical problems for different people in the institution. We also have um, an educational part, which means we um, have, for instance, a number of seminars that all staff are invited to every couple of years. We run um, separate larger events in the Institute of Child Health, looking at things like uh, children's rights or um, how much surgery is reasonable in small babies to try and improve the situation they're born with when they have congenital problems, which is fascinating with a number of people from outside the institution. We've had the Children's Commissioner, um, Children's Ministers, other people. We're also part of the Institute of Child Health MSCs in paediatrics and other specialties doing ethics and law lectures in those areas. And so education training is an important part of what we do. We run simulation, which is a new thing for ethics. It really, we have very little ethics background simulation. We started running that for the ethics committee themselves. And um, yeah, lots of kind of innovation things in terms of organ donation and um, end-of-life treatments and part of other people's teaching and training. The third bit is research. Um, the field of paediatric bioethics is a fairly new one, and we are part of the research collaborations and also have a number of publications and grants ourselves looking at how tough decisions in childhood are best made, how we can think about very complex things like um, gender issues, um, issues around who chooses about vaccinations, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, and the final bit is actually in staff support, because as you'll be aware, um, looking after very, very sick children, when we're doing more and more treatments, many of which work very well, but also that have an increased burden on both the child and the family, can cause issues with staff when they're not sure whether what's happening is the right thing. And part of tackling what's called moral distress, that difficulty understanding why certain things are being done when the teams are treating children. We have a kind of an outward facing thing where one of my colleagues goes and runs sessions on the wards for, say, intensive care nurses or other teams from the hospital to try and discuss ethical issues, trying to prevent kind of that probably soul destroying moral distress becoming trauma and burnout and making people leave their jobs because we really want to keep people working and waiting on the street because it's a great place to work, but also it's important we identify and recognize that it can be a tough place to live when you're dealing with very, very sick children and parents going through a really tough. Mm -hmm. So they're the four things we do. Great. So I just wanted to pick up on a couple of points you mentioned. So you mentioned that you involve families and children in the committee around ethics and decision making. Mm. So what are the practicalities of including children and young people um, in the decision making process? Very good question. So not in the committee itself. Our committee meets 13, well, 12 times a year on a Wednesday. And I think any young person would sit through that would never. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> we have thought about it, but... Uh, we do have parents on that committee rather than children themselves, but very much when we have discussions about um, treatments for children that are innovative and experimental and sometimes a desperate attempt to try and help, if the young person is able to contribute and wants to do so, we very much open the doors to them. As with the families, they often will come together, the parents and the child, 
and be supported by an appropriate member of the team, whether that's our PALS team, or if they're very supported by faith group during their care, that might be one of the chaplains comes with them, or someone else to support them. And very much we bring them into the room because it's their treatment we're talking about. And the sad thing is for many of the young people involved, they're much too sick to come to our meeting. They're either on the intensive care and ventilated on life support machines for, for different reasons and they can't contribute to discussions and decision-making. But for instance, uh, we had a young person two weeks ago came along and was fully involved in the discussion about whether she should have a very experimental, unusual treatment that hadn't really been done in many people in the world before, and certainly not in, in our experience. And so she fully thought through the kind of innovative therapies framework and, and the things we think are the right questions to ask. So it very much is about involving children and young people in that decision-making particularly the hardest stuff and, and that you know it's about them so we can't I don't think it's right for us to shield children from the tough decisions such as well is this treatment is it going to work and what happens if it doesn't work because particularly if you're a young person this is happening to you this mm -hmm. is your body your life and your parents are there supporting you but also it is you this is happening to happening to so I think involving children and young people in that area is really I don't think it's something we should shy away from. There are sometimes cultural issues that make that quite difficult. And, and we, you know, we have a couple of cases where parents want to shield their child from, from various tough areas. Depending on you know, how old the child is, sometimes the child has an absolute right to be involved in decision-making if they're over 16. With younger children, we, we normally find a way to work with the family and it tends to work. Okay, great. So we're talking about a centre that specialises in really complex management and treatment plans. What is the role of ethics and an ethics committee in a local hospital or a smaller hospital? And how might they link with us when we're looking after their patients? Again, another good question. We did a bit of work last year because we didn't know the answer to that question. Um, the UK Clinical Ethics Network is our national group that kind of looks at ethics committees in different centres. And most of that group from our area are from the teaching hospitals, the larger hospitals, if you like, not all children's centres. And um, we went and looked at most of the hospitals that maybe sent children into Great Ormond Street, the London and South East area, and had ethics presentations and discussions. And most of them did not have ethics committees. And the ones that did rarely saw paediatric cases. Then you have some very, you know, that, that's, it isn't the case that most centres in London don't have an ethics committee, don't get me wrong. Places like St Mary's, you know, they have huge ethics committees and they see paediatric cases as part of that. But for lots of the district generals, they, they kind of don't have an ethics set up. Um, and occasionally we have offered support to them. So we've had ethics meetings with children at other centres, usually because they have a, a relationship with Great Ormond Street, even if that's a palliative care team relationship. So the question then was, as you would imagine, the next step is, what, what would you like? Could we help you? And I think the feeling generally was that the support they get from their tertiary centres for most paediatric cases that are maybe rare diseases, um, and whether that's to Great Tormund Street or the Evelina or other big children's hospitals, they were really happy with the support they got. And if there were complex ethical discussions, they very much felt they probably ought to be under the remit of the children's hospitals. The one exception is kind of the tough neonatal cases, which sometimes district general hospitals have, and they don't kind of have that way into larger centres if you have a child that has a complex problem that isn't under a tertiary centre. 
So that's something we're working out and haven't got an answer yet for that question, which is a good one. And mm -hmm. um, how does that happen? The other thing I think it's fair to add is that many other centres don't have the parents and children involved where there are ethics discussions. That's something we decided to put great on the street some time ago. Now, that isn't necessarily because it's always the right thing to do. It can be on balance, sometimes quite difficult to have parents in that situation. And, you know, I, I certainly would not say it is a must, this must happen. It's something we chose to do. And with ethics, again, there's not a, an evidence base that tells you this is absolutely the right thing to do. We, we generally as a group feel that's the right thing to do, but I certainly wouldn't criticise people who had a more traditional ethics model where the clinicians come along and present the case and go away and have some kind of advice on how to make decisions. Um, I, I personally feel our way is a little bit better, but I, I think it's better to have some ethical input than, than to have to go for the version that we might think is, is the right one. So it sounds like it's been an evolving process. Absolutely. Um, and I suppose it's, it's in keeping with the fact that the health needs are also changing um, amongst our paediatric communities. So it brings me to my next question about what particular things have you seen change in the last 10 years in the field of ethics? I, I think the field of ethics, it's, it's almost the question of the field of paediatrics. And so if I go back in my area of intensive care, children are surviving intensive care in much greater numbers than before. But with that, there are children surviving with more complex ongoing health needs. And we see rises in, in the UK, England, Welsh population particularly, in all the different areas where children have life-linked conditions. So we have many children living in the community who are dependent on technology. We have children whose bedrooms have ventilators that children live on all the time. We have children at home on renal replacement treatments, parental nutrition, and more recently, ventilator assist devices. So, you know, the technology that's happening in children's bedrooms was probably quite... Um, quite serious technology in intensive care only 30 years ago and now it's in children's bedrooms and it's astonishing that difference in technological dependence and children who are coming in for multiple admissions to the intensive care unit. Into this there are a lot of complex decisions that need to be made about how far do we push because we're doing more and more aggressive treatments. Mm -hmm. Some of our successes in medicine, neonatology, cardiac surgery, oncology, these, these are areas where medicine has been transformed. But it does mean the decision-making now about when we might stop doing things, stop aggressive life-sustaining treatment, is, is probably harder than it was maybe even 10 years ago. So the shared decision-making is generally better in terms of bringing children and families into that position. Mm -hmm. The old medical paternalism of maybe even 20 years ago that we will stop the ventilator as the child's dying and that's our decision as doctors has wandered away now to we have that conversation with families and generally despite some of the more recent kind of high profile cases where there have been overt disagreements um, in most cases that is resolved with the child the family the clinical treating team all, all together and, and agreeing in the end on, on most of the stuff that goes on so i think it's important to get that message there that most treatment works very well on most days mm -hmm. um, partly the amount that parents and older children are allowed to decide by a medical kind of old paternalistic view that's settling in getting less, less kind of the doctor decides and knows best, has improved things generally, I think, in terms of patient involvement, child's and family's involvement in healthcare decisions and ownership of that. And it, I think in general has led to much better decision making. 
Mm-hmm. But at the same time, diseases are having more aggressive treatments. Mm-hmm. And so there's a tougher area when those things start to diverge, when a medical team might think, we don't think we should do this anymore for a child. And conversely, when the medical team think they should carry on and the parents sometimes think they should stop mm-hmm. um, the treatment because they don't think it can help the child anymore. So it isn't all a one-way thing either. So those decisions where the medical and patient views diverge a bit can be quite tough. So, I mean, given how much change we've seen in the last 10 years, my next question would be, what do you see changing in the next 10 years? Oh, no, I wish I had a bit of money there and I could make a lot of money and have foresight. Um, there are some really exciting things. And I think you know, the involvement of children in research, that sort of thing, has transformed dramatically to much better. Children's engagement in development and design, but I think simply you see it all over the place. The intelligent kind of computing, decision-making by technology, is, is going to make this huge difference. Whether it's surgery done by robots, which is not really the prime time, I'm sure. Whether it's different automation, automation of processes like going to get your drugs from the pharmacy, Amazon delivering, I don't know, new batteries to your home ventilator by... Mm-hmm. Drone, who knows where we'll be. I think it's very exciting, but also a bit scary Mm -hmm. because the future will be very different and maybe lots of our jobs will be taken over by machines. So that will be very, very different in maybe five, 10 years. Possibly safer driving. I mean, again, one of the things I've seen is intensive care doctors, fewer car crashes. Mm -hmm. Maybe when we automate that fully, that will be even better. Who knows? I think in medicine, that kind of role of artificial intelligence will be really interesting. Other things that I think are hugely challenging and interesting at the same time are the kind of datification of children. That children now, if you think about this, the ethics behind this is not well thought out. But my, my kids at home are on apps that I've never heard of. Right. You know, the minute I've heard of them, they're no longer cool. <laughs> so they're on them and they are just freely giving their data away. You have children who have got little toys who are taking some of their personal data and transmitting it who knows where. Mm-hmm. So our control of some of that stuff and the fact that our children are having their data readily given away in early childhood without any control of that, I think is a real challenge. What does that mean for our patients? The huge data offers us great exciting possibilities of treating diseases in a better way, getting more information, better treatments. But also I suspect that's the vulnerability of the individual. Mm-hmm. And I, that's a really interesting area as well. So artificial intelligence, datification of children. And then lately, I've been interested a lot more in the children's rights area. Mm-hmm. So the idea that our decision-making currently is we make decisions in the child's best interests. And that's being pushed at the moment with families and certain groups trying to change that to parents should decide everything unless the child will be harmed. And I, you know, that's way in some ways that the United States approaches things, but it does mean that, that the state has much less of a role in children's welfare compared to the family and some people think that's absolutely appropriate. I, I think the level that kind of is not what I think is entirely the right thing is when you think about the rights of the child mm-hmm. and we're heading up to the anniversary of the UN Convention the rights of the child and I think it's a, a fantastic bit of legislation um, and, and it really protects the child as the most important person in everything that's going on. And I think we might end up with a bit of pushback there where 
the rights of the child to have what people think is the best treatment um, might come more to the fore. Um, not that it's ever gone out of our legislation mm -hmm. or indeed our, our standards of ethical treatments, you know, our frameworks. But I think very often when you're a, a clinician and a parent is demanding certain treatments, it's quite hard not to acquiesce uh, with the current way the world is. And sometimes that's difficult that we don't think that's the right thing for the child. And I do wonder whether that might be something where that pendulum swings a little bit back towards that kind of treating the child as the most important person in all of this. So what, so what advice would you then give to our trainee doctors or trainee paediatricians who will be listening to this podcast? Okay. Um, advice for young paediatricians. I mean, it's fantastic. It's an absolute privilege and honour to look after children and uh, families. And I think we do a wonderful job. It is by far the most interesting bit of this. The Every, ethic, ethical side of things. No, paediatrics. I'm mm. still making a plug for paediatrics. <laughs> You know, where do you end up ventilating children, looking after immunizations and development and talking to adolescents about reproduction and, and other stuff? You know, it's a hugely diverse area of medicine and we're very lucky to do it. The ethical aspects, I think, are, are terrific. There is so much variety. So I shouldn't mind me saying this, but I, I just had a, an ethics case presented to me. It's a child from another country. But this is, just don't get this in adult practice. So a pregnant 16-year-old with sickle cell disease whose parents are split on whether she should carry on the pregnancy. Given she's on drugs that would harm a pregnancy, that will harm her if she stops taking them. You don't get this in adults. Mm -hmm. That's an amazingly diverse thing with so many people involved. You have the rights of the child, teenage decision-making, the unborn child, the fetus to take into account, and her parents who have parental responsibility. Yet that is easing away as this young person gets older. But under English law, you still have parental abilities to consent your, for your child's treatment until she becomes 18. But does that include termination of pregnancy? Well, by the letter of the law, it probably does, but that's a really difficult situation when the young person herself would oppose it. So that's the kind of tough area we deal with in paediatrics. Not frequently, but you know, it's just this fascinating area where the interplay between children, their parents, the law, and some of the medical stuff we can do, it's going to be very interesting in the next 10 to 20 years. Yes. So ethically, it's the richest area of medicine, there's no doubt about that. If you ever go to an ethics congress and half of the presentations after that paediatrics, you're in the wrong meeting. Great. Thank you very much, Joe. So this is the end of this podcast. Stay tuned for further podcasts on ethics in the series. Thank you for listening to Gosh Pods. If you would like more information on courses and educational opportunities offered by Gosh Learning Academy, please visit the website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy or follow us on Twitter at Gosh Learn Acad.